Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels part 86. Last week we saw some feisty Jesus uh, in his response that Herod was coming to kill him and calling him a fox and um, how a lot of people typically interpret that as Herod was trying to be cunning and conniving to catch Jesus in the moment, but actually Jesus is using a very Jewish phrase to say that in comparison to who I am and who my father is, like a lion, Herod is nothing but a fox. He he is so far diminished in terms of quality and integrity that (laughs) it's almost laughable to to hear people offer these threats at me because that he, he just is not even an opponent right now in comparison to the spiritual opponents that Jesus was facing. Yeah. Um, and then we moved on to another story in John. Um, it was around the time of Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, and people were, again, exasperated, saying, like, won't you just go ahead and tell us if you're the Christ. Why are you keeping us in suspense? Which in some ways is very ironic and kind of funny that they're asking that after all that Jesus has said and done up until this point. Uh, But then he went into a discourse again back to the shepherd versus sheep analogy um, about those that truly know the shepherd, know his voice, and are within his care. And um, we kind of broke down the typical theological weightiness when Jesus says no one will snatch them out of my hand to make it less of a trigger uh, word in the text and more of like no like if you're a part of God's team and you're you're following his voice like he's going to protect you he's going to keep you in his fold as long as you're pursuing him the ultimate shepherd that's right yeah it's good yeah, and and so we actually we didn't talk about it much, but we did kind of break off in the middle of the conversation because what was the last thing they wanted to do to him, Samuel? Uh, didn't they want to st- stone him? Yeah, they were going to stone him, and why? Um, well, they said that he was blaspheming. Yeah, called it blasphemy. He was making himself out to be God, and so we're going to pick up from there. And I don't know, I I would think that for most people, this is a little bit of a surprising answer, maybe not what the first thing you would have thought of, whatever. So we're in John, we're in chapter 10, we're looking at verses 34 to 38. It says this, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the works. 
that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So, one thing, I want to address this real quick off the top, because it uses the phrase, in your law. So let's not jump off the deep end and go into a big misunderstanding, thinking that somehow Jesus is separating himself from Torah. I mean, Jesus keeps the Torah perfectly. Jesus is the the human manifestation of Torah. Jesus is not separating. He's simply saying, in your law, it's, it's almost like he's emphasizing or pointing out their role in the Jewish community, their special affinity regarding the scriptures, all of that kind of stuff. So he's, he's putting it on them saying, look, you take ownership of this thing, and it's that very thing that should help you to know me, that I am who I say I am, but whatever. Uh, and then just side note, note that whatever it is that Jesus quoted, I said, you are gods, that's in the Psalms. And so Jesus is including the Psalms in the law. It's a very interesting little thing right there. Hmm. But anyway, Jesus, uh, okay, so what's he doing? He's answering their blasphemy charge. And he recalls Psalm 82, verse 6. Samuel, why don't you go ahead and at least read the first part of that? I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Okay. So, I mean, we don't have to wonder, was Jesus, you know, thinking, of, I mean, this is like, this is a direct quote right from the Old Testament. Now, this would have been very familiar to all of them that were there. And here's why. It was sung in the temple every week. And if that isn't enough detail for you, apparently, according to a bunch of scholars, it was sung on Tuesdays. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the day that we're recording this. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know how they know that, but I think that's really interesting. Whatever. So, but anyway, the, the common interpretation or the, the tradition of Jesus' day is actually quite surprising. When God had saved Israel from Egypt and he brought them to Mount Sinai, he gave them his Torah. So that's familiar so far, right, Samuel? Mm-hmm. Now, at the time, they were also protected from the angel of death. Again, this is their their tradition, their interpretation. The nation was protected from the angel of death, meaning that they had what, Samuel? Um, that's a really good question. I'm, I'm kind of drawing a blank here. Yeah. If, I mean, if they were protected from the angel of death, they had some sort of seal from God, yeah. right? Yeah, and they had life and seemingly no end because if they were protected from the angel of death, right? So they had this elevated status or this divine status. And so they were sons of God, right? So their tradition says, hey, when God pulled them all out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai, they were all going to be gods. It was going to be like a real thing. But then, and I don't mean gods like him, I just mean elevated status, you know, whatever. But then the golden calf thing happens. Everybody's familiar with that story. And so when that happened, this divine status, this protection from the angel of death, all of it was revoked. 
And then they died like all other men. So, you know, the theory is, and, and again, it's the, the tradition, if they hadn't sinned, they would have still been in that condition or state. So, so this is what Jesus is playing on. Psalm 82.6 is referring back to this, this original tradition, or, or that's where the tradition came from, or whatever. You are God's sons of the Most High. So, uh, Jesus' rebuttal, then, makes a little more sense. You have no problem accepting that God would set apart certain men as gods or sons of God, and again, it was those who were at Sinai. In fact, it's a, it's a part of your tradition. You know this. So, God sets me apart and sends me to you, and again, that little reminder that we are in the book of John, the Gospel of John, and so we know that the Word made flesh is the Torah made flesh, right? That's Jesus. So God sets him apart, sends him to them, and now it's a problem that he calls himself a son of God. How, how does that make sense? It's just another example of them not judging righteously. It's them showing partiality. It's kind of like when they said, uh, oh, you're casting out demons by Beelzebul, we do it by God, right? That kind of thing. Well, if they refer to someone as a son of God, then, you know, somehow that's okay. But when Jesus does it, and even though Jesus is referring to a sinless one, albeit himself, uh, but when Jesus does it, it's blasphemy. So it's just judging unrighteously, showing partiality. It's bad. So then Jesus, you know, he kind of moves from being frustrated to merciful. And I know we've we've tried at various points. I'm sh- I'm absolutely certain we've not hit them all, but we've tried on occasion to show where even while Jesus is busting chops or whatever things are going on, there's still all these moments when he he's merciful anyway. It's like he just can't help himself. And here, it's almost like he's begging them to just recognize, I don't know, anything of his life and ministry as coming from God. He knows that they're not hearing his words, or maybe that they won't hear his words. But can they even recognize the works? You know, just that they are from God. They have to be from God. Now, another quick side note, when we talk about works in in an instance like this, we are definitely including every aspect of Jesus's life where he is obedience to Torah. So on one hand, they should be able to easily see that. He is perfectly faithful and loyal to Torah. But then you also got to figure, well, it probably would maybe also include some of the signs and miracles, because what was the point of them, Samuel? They're supposed to be a symbol of what his messianic kingdom is going to be about. Yeah. If he was doing these signs, miracles, whatever, and they all had some relationship to what the expectation of the kingdom was all about, then they were signs of that kingdom, and then, of course, he was the king, whatever. So, 
we understand that Jesus's relationship with the Father is, yeah, I don't know, it's beyond anything that's ever been in humanity before, but Jesus is only asking them to accept what was within the bounds of normal for them. To think that one person, anyone, could be in unity with the Father. You know, that that God was working through him. This was in no way outside the bounds of normal. It's not that they were unable to accept that. That's the point of how Jesus has worded all this. It's just that they were unwilling to accept that about him. And so Jesus is calling him on it. Yeah, that's tough. And I think that there's also at play here their previous expectations of what they thought the Messiah was going to be for them, for their nation as a whole. And Jesus, in so many cases, was the opposite of that to them. And it's understandable for them to be reasoning with such illogical thinking when that kind of emotional response is probably at play right now. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Totally agree. And then at the same time, you and I both know that the Jews already had that concept of the two messiahs, and he fit perfectly with Messiah, son of Joseph, the suffering Messiah, but they weren't going to see it. (laughs) It's crazy. Crazy. Well, so let's see what happens. We go, we continue in John chapter 10, verses 39 to 42, says this. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. All right, so the guys he's, you know, interacting with, they they remain upset. They still want to arrest him, or they want to arrest him again, whatever. And here's the thing. It's another one of those examples. Jesus may have evaded their grasp either naturally or supernaturally. We don't really know. We, there's been a, a, a few instances, I think, where John has done this, and we can't tell if John is telling us because he wants us to see it as a miracle or if he's just, you know, telling the story. Oh, by the way, he got away. It's very weird, and I'm willing to accept either. The supernatural is always more fun, but what are you going to do? So the, the point is he's got danger in and around Galilee, He's got danger in and around Jerusalem, and, you know, he's only a few months out from the the final Passover, so he needs a safer place to go for a while, and John, the gospel writer, says that he goes to the place where John the Baptist had, I guess, begun his ministry of repentance, that baptism, all of that, and he stays there for a while, and a bunch of people end up going there to see him, uh, and here's the thing. And I feel like we've said this out loud before, too. Even after his death, John the Baptist had remained a very popular figure. And it was known that John had identified Jesus as 
the Messiah. And so, as word spreads, many end up going out to see Jesus in this place, even though it's kind of sort of out in the boonies. Uh, he, they, they go there, they want to see him. And you got to figure he probably was teaching. Uh, I, I would imagine he was doing some signs, etc. And so ultimately, the people recall that, that John the Baptist, you know, he didn't actually do any signs. And, and because they say that out loud, that's kind of a hint that Jesus was probably doing some, you know, because it reminded them, oh yeah, John never did this. But whatever he was saying and doing, they were convinced that what John had said about him was true, that this was indeed the Messiah, and many believed. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. That's kind of a, a indirect reference to Jesus doing more miraculous things uh, in this larger theme in the last parts of the Gospels with his life that we typically attribute him decreasing the amount of miracles that he did as he got closer to Holy Week and his imminent death and stuff. So that's, that's cool to see that detail that like he did more all the way until the end than we maybe give him credit for. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you got to figure if you're writing the story, is there ever a point where you get tired of going, and then he healed this guy, and then he, you know, maybe they, it's like, hey, I've told enough of these stories, they get the picture, mm-hmm. right? And so they quit talking about it. I mean, there could be lots of reasons, but yeah, it's, I, I have to, I have to imagine Jesus was pretty much Jesus every day. I mean, he changes a little bit. We've seen some different sides of his personality and stuff, but I bet he's pretty consistent. All right. Well, Samuel? We're going to move on to a different section, and this is kind of interesting. I mean, we've got a few stories coming up. Jesus interacting with some people, telling some stories, stuff like that. And so, I don't know. I think this will be kind of fun. So, we're going to go back to Luke. We're in chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, They were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So, maybe before we start talking about the text, just notice, you know, this is more good insight into who this Jesus person was. I mean, he was was just very Jewish through and through. Here he is again, participating in Sabbath. And we see, I mean, culturally, I think y- you, should, you should be able to see this without much effort. He was closely connected with the Pharisees. Why do we say that? Because here he is again dining at a Pharisee's house. In fact, he's called a ruler of the Pharisees. Now, if Jesus had been closely aligned with 
some other group. I don't know, the Sadducees or Essenes or something, whoever else. Well, the Pharisees wouldn't have been inviting him to dinner so much. They keep inviting him to dinner because they feel like they are closely connected and, you know, some, uh, maybe some are trying to trap him, some are really trying to figure out who this guy is, whatever, but the Pharisees, they're, they're close. Now, this was this was probably a pretty elaborate affair. I'm guessing, I don't know, again, culturally, things that we read about, this was probably the best the Pharisee had to offer. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it needed to be extravagant because, you know, a lot of the Pharisees were rich and a lot of them were poor. So we don't really know what's what, but it was probably the best that this Pharisee had to offer. All right. So anyway, uh, so there's this guy, and I love the way it says this. Behold, there was a man before him. (laughs) What, did he just like drop out of thin air or something? It's just funny. But anyway, he has dropsy. Uh, Another name for that is edema. And if you're not already familiar with that, it's just some sort of fluid accumulation in the body. Uh, And you've probably seen something like that where some, you know, like somebody's legs kind of blow up a little bit because they got water or something. But anyway, it could be caused by lots of different things. It could have been a heart issue, a liver issue, kidneys, veins, lymphatic system, whatever, all kinds of stuff. But we're assuming it's kind of like what we know today. But then there's the question, is it lawful? Is it lawful? And we've seen it a number of times before. We're just going to quickly review it again. This was already a debate in Jesus's time. Jesus didn't start it. Jesus is joining in. Uh, Jesus, you know, just to make note of it, he was on one side of the debate, and and it was kind of the extreme side. There was, I'm going to say, the majority, they were sort of in this spot of going, look, if somebody is dying, well, it's definitely okay to heal them, even on a Sabbath. But if you got somebody and, you know, their life's not really in danger, you know what? The healing needs to wait. Don't be doing that on the Sabbath. That was the majority stance. But Jesus was teaching, We've again, we've said it before, he was teaching that the alleviation of human suffering, and that could then mean any kind of healing, not just saving a life, alleviating human suffering was a higher priority than keeping Sabbath. Now, remember, Jesus was a faithful Sabbath keeper, just like everyone else. And if you don't believe me, remember he was sinless. And if he's sinless, that means he kept Torah perfectly, which means he was a faithful Sabbath keeper. Now, notice Jesus responds to them as if, you know, they had brought the man before him or something. And I don't know, this is also easy to miss. Uh, we We should point this out. Jesus, he's following a bit of a social protocol. So so he offers the host and the others that are present, he offers them the opportunity to answer first. So this this guy with dropsy shows up, and you got to imagine they've like planned this and brought him in. He offers the host the opportunity to answer the question. And what was the question? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they didn't answer. And so, social protocol, that meant that Jesus was then free to speak or to teach around the question that he had asked. And so, they remained silent. 
And honestly, it, it, it to me, it looks like the whole thing is a setup. I mean, they invite Jesus over for Sabbath, and there's presumably other Pharisees, maybe some scribes, because it mentions that in the verse. But then they also invite this guy with dropsy, just to, I don't know, see what happens. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they were trying to trap him or accuse him. They could just as easily have been on his side, or they could have just been, you know, confused. Who is this Jesus guy? Conflicted. I want to believe, but I don't know. Or intrigued, or I don't know, whatever. So, but here's the thing. Jesus heals him and sends him away. Well, okay, so this guy probably wasn't a Pharisee. Because if he was a Pharisee, he would have just stayed for the rest of the dinner. So again, it's like the guy just turns out to be a prop of sorts. Anyway, probably not a real guest. And now one might say that this healing represents, you know, I don't know, some sort of endorsement from God. It's a justification for Jesus' actions. And I think that's an important part of it. Just because Jesus was walking around saying, hey, you guys have it wrong, you, you should be able to heal on the Sabbath, even if somebody's life is not at stake. But when, when he is able to perform miraculous healing, something that can only be done, you know, by, in, through, from God, well, that's, that's like an endorsement. It's a justification for his actions, and he's done it multiple times. So anyway, I think that's kind of a cool point. And... Here's Jesus, he's, you know, he's, he's doing this healing, but he adds some teaching into the mix. So, so for the, the wise among them, the wise Jews, faithful, I don't know what you want to call them, you know, miracles all by themselves weren't enough. The, the, the person doing the miracles, their actions, their words, everything must align with Torah somehow. And, and so he says to them, you know. You know that you would save one of your own children or even one of your animals from danger. And you know that you would do that even on the Sabbath. Now, he doesn't say it explicitly, but I think what we're supposed to pick up on, the implication is, any fellow human is just as important and just as worthy of help or saving from trouble or danger. Now, we've seen in other episodes that Jesus' logic is that we walk through it. First of all, compassion through the scriptures is shown to be of a higher priority than the temple services. And the temple services are shown through the scriptures that they're of higher importance than the Sabbath. Therefore, if compassion is greater than the temple services, and the temple services are greater than Sabbath, then compassion is greater than the Sabbath. And it's derived from you know, like one of the passages, Hosea 6.6, 6, but mostly we need to see that this points back to the time that they were in the desert, they had the tabernacle, where this, this entire equation that we just talked about, it was all lived out. I mean, you, could, you can see it. So there's, it's not real magic here. He's not making up something that, you know, is difficult for them to see. But in the end, here's the thing. They had no reply. In fact, it says they could not reply. And again, It's not necessary that we see them as bad guys. You know, sitting in stunned silence can just as easily mean they were truly touched or affected by what they had seen and heard. Now, 
I can't say that I know any more than the next guy, but I'm just saying we shouldn't jump to conclusions. Yeah. And there's so many elements within this story that you could look at that could play into these Pharisees' reactions as well as thinking about their conduct towards the Sabbath in this culture leading up to Jesus beginning his ministry. And what I mean by that is I'm just trying to think if there was a person that had this condition, dropsy, um, and came to a Pharisee um, or interacting on the Sabbath, whatever, and there was some opportunity there for healing or whatever, I guess I'm thinking, I'm not trying to minimize that there weren't miraculous healings in Jesus' day prior to him coming onto the scene because, I mean, all throughout the Old Testament you see the Spirit still move among certain people and do miraculous things. Oh, yeah. Um, but if I'm just trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the Pharisee in this moment. Like, if you had someone coming to you in drop with dropsy on the Sabbath, like, uh, other than a divine miracle happening in that moment, like, what is that Pharisee going to do to, to try to fix their condition? And so I wonder if that mindset, that tendency led to this, it becoming a habit among their culture to be like, you know, our hands are tied, so why should we focus and prioritize this when ultimately we can't do anything about it anyway? And maybe Jesus is, like, he, he's taking it a step higher. He's raising the bar through his power to do the miraculous, but at the same time, maybe he's touching on, okay, maybe like you as a human not doing these miraculous things that I am, Maybe you don't have the ability to heal their condition, but you can still alleviate their suffering by inviting them into your rest on Sabbath. Like you can yeah. like bring them into your home. Like you can give them space to be able to rest. You can feed them like the foods that they need for whatever condition that they have, or you can feed them foods that help alleviate their mental and emotional struggles with the, the ailments that they're facing. I don't know. I'm just... Yeah. It's a it's a struggle on both sides of it, but I think Jesus is again he's like that double edged sword piercing to the heart on both sides through his responses. Yeah, that's a really good observation. I like that, and I, I, and this is going to sound like I'm totally off in left field. I don't want to take away from your point, but I don't know why this popped in my head while you were talking. Notice that no one gave credit to a demon. For this particular sickness. Hmm. It seems like we've seen a lot of them and things keep being attributed to demons and whatnot. This one wasn't. Hmm. Jesus just healed him. So anyway, there's that. Yeah, it's a good point, Samuel. Good point. There's the, the alleviation of suffering doesn't just have to be some sort of supernatural healing. It can be just all-out kindness and charity and generosity and mercy and justice and all of that. Yeah. It's good. Now, okay, so here we got these guys, and, you know, it, it seems like, well, this could have been one of those moments where there's real tension, or it could have been not so much. I mean, we, we're talking about that a little bit. So as we read on, I think this is going to be very interesting. So we're continuing in, yeah. <laughs> 
We're continuing in Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. Check out what happens. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the first thing I'd like to point out is, Remember, we're all at a dinner. He's done something that could be super uncomfortable. He healed on the Sabbath, whatever. But we see that the dinner just kind of continues without any further discussion of healing on the Sabbath. Apparently, it wasn't that big of an issue right here in this moment, in this time. And so maybe these guys really weren't, you know, uh, trouble. Maybe they, maybe they were accepting Jesus' reasoning. Anyway, just wanted to point that out. It seems like, you know, the, the good vibes are continuing. But anyway, Jesus, is noti- Jesus notices something about the guests. Everybody's being super careful about finding their place at the table. And, you know, as he explains, it means they're trying to seat themselves according to their own perception of relative honor, right, compared to the other guests. So you show up and it's like, oh, well, <laughs> I know that the host likes me better than Bob, so I'm going to sit up ahead of Bob. I have more honor than Bob. Well, Jesus, being a good rabbi that he is, he recognizes this behavior among them. They're, you know, jockeying for position. And and he also recognizes, you know what, this is a teachable moment. So he uses two things. Uh, Their own behavior, because they know that they're doing this, everybody's involved in it, and he's using just like common imagery, that of a wedding feast. So on one hand, I mean, this is good practical advice for people in social situations, right? I mean, careful when you go to some sort of party or banquet or something, you know, don't uh, imagine yourself higher than you should, and then, you know, hopefully you'll get invited up or something. Now, we have to at least acknowledge that, but be careful. All of us, we need to be careful to act humbly and let others exalt us, or you know, or not, and that's to avoid the potential embarrassment or shame. Now, the thing is, this is good, this is good info, good advice for any of us, all of us, all across time, and it doesn't just apply to a dinner, but we'll talk about that in a second. Here's the thing. This teaching comes directly from Proverbs. Chapter 25, verses 6 and 7. Samuel, why don't you read that? Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Yeah. 
So Jesus, again, he's not coming up with anything new. He's just using their behavior and using that as a teaching, teachable moment. But also notice that in Proverbs, where are they at, Samuel? I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, it says, don't put yourself forward in the... Oh, in the king's presence. Yeah. So this isn't just a wedding feast. This is like some really fancy affair. You're with a king. So if Jesus is kind of alluding back to this as he's telling the parable, we could see in this a subtle hint at Jesus's kingship in there. Hmm? Hmm. Very nice. Yeah, I thought that was pretty crafty myself. It's like, oh, Jesus, you're a smarty. Uh, But of course, you know, Jesus, obviously, he's not solely concerned with social etiquette. He has bigger things in mind, like the kingdom. So what Jesus has said, and I'm not going to bother like trying to retell the story or anything, but it's remarkably similar to a saying of Hillel, one of the two big rabbis of of Jesus's time. But Jesus says something uh, concerning a social affair, like a wedding feast, applies to every area of life. If you in any circumstance, all circumstances, if you assume a humble place, again, every circumstance, every situation in life, you will be exalted. Now, it's not a formula, you know, it's not like a guarantee, but generally speaking, that's the way things go. Now, this will sometimes be true right here in everyday life, right? That's what we've been talking about. But It can also be true before God, and in fact, it's not sometimes true, it's unavoidably true before God. If you assume the humble place, you will be exalted. That's kind of cool. And I would say that that is is actually a formula, except that I don't want people to think that that means somehow God's going to do it the way you want, or in the timing that you want, or here on earth when he's, you know, whatever. I'm just saying, it's unavoidably true before God. Just remember, we live in an upside-down world, at least when compared to the kingdom. In the kingdom, the last will be first, the first will be last, the humble will be exalted, right? All of that stuff. So, kind of a cool little, kind of a cool little story there. Yeah, that was really good. Um, while you were going through that, I was thinking in the moment that some could argue the way that Jesus was responding in this way that he could be suggesting that himself that jesus himself should be the one that should be in the seat of honor because of you know he's the son of god he's the messiah he's the christ whether or not they recognize that but Mm. i wonder jesus is stressing less on his identity as to the reason why he should be in the seat of honor and more so emulating God's characteristic of radical hospitality that he's known for and and is showcased in the patriarchs in the Torah. And like what I mean by that is like we go back to Abraham and when the mysterious guest arrived at his house right after he had gotten circumcised, he would have been in pain and still recovering from that. Like he and his wife, Sarah, got up from that event and made all kinds of bread and and treated them to like kings even though they didn't even know them and so many other countless stories in the Torah of like when you have just someone 
bless you and your house by arriving, that you go out of your way to demonstrate God's love in that way by making them feel welcomed and loved um, and, and seen and known and valued. And now I'm not saying that the the host of this party didn't do that, but the fact that there were so many people fighting for that place seems to suggest to me that that the host of the party didn't do his job to make the guest feel welcome to where that would wouldn't be a quarrel that was happening, I guess. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, we do know that Pharisees weren't, uh, they got more wrapped up in the rules than the actual real goal of Torah, and so maybe hospitality uh, was one of the things they weren't very good at. Mm-hmm. So maybe yeah, maybe you really are seeing what they're doing. I don't know. It is a weird picture. I feel like you said what I said in like 500 less words. So dang, <laughs> I, w- I wish I had that power of summary. Yeah, well, I got to think ahead and I'm still super wordy. So whatever. <laughs> I think you're okay. <laughs> yeah. So now uh, he... Uh, you know, they started with the healing thing, and now they've moved on with this, uh, you know, little teaching about, I don't know, almost like how to be a good guest or, you know, whatever. Actually, how to act in every situation, really. And and so now check this out. And this adds to the idea that maybe there wasn't anything really contentious going on here. Uh, we're going to continue in Luke 14. This is verses 12 to 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. All right, so I jumped a little bit ahead. I guess that didn't totally make the point I was thinking. That's coming up, though, so stick with me. But, I I mean, hey, here's Jesus. He's at this party, so to speak, and he appears to be on a bit of a roll, right? And so he turns his attention back to the host, and he offers, I mean, I don't know, this kind of seems, I, I don't know, I would feel awkward saying this, but he offers some, some, some instructions about how to properly have a dinner or a banquet. So, I don't know, seems a little weird. Jesus emphasizes, you know, there's a lot of things that, that are important about having a dinner or a banquet and being hospitable and all that, but Jesus emphasizes the importance of who you invite. What you should do is invite only those who cannot repay you with a similar invitation. So, Samuel, is Jesus saying that we can't have dinners with friends? Stuff like that? Nope. No, of course not. He's not saying that dinners with friends and families and whatever, he's not saying that's forbidden. He's simply saying that those dinners aren't fruitful like in the kingdom sense. Just as one 
should or could choose the humble place in every area of life, one should look to exalt others who cannot exalt themselves. And that's just to say that they're in truly humble circumstance. So you try to humble yourself in relation to everyone else, and you try to raise up or exalt everyone else around you. This is how we should all be behaving, not only with dinners, but in every area. Again, now, just as we can rely on God to exalt us when we choose to humble ourselves, we can rely on God to repay the kindness that we show to the truly humble. You know, those who can't repay. God repays for them. Now, that's not why you do it, but just understanding that if you feel like, man, I'm just giving, 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 right? Okay, but it's okay, because you're going to get repaid by the one who can truly repay in the resurrection. Now, notice that this whole thing of caring for the humble, the downtrodden, the down and out, whatever, okay, that's what Jesus sees as justice. Now, we, modern English, modern America, whatever, we probably, when we hear the word justice, we're more often thinking of things like courtrooms, getting at the truth, right versus wrong, and all good things, and all, I mean, they are aspects of justice, to be sure, but to be included in the resurrection of the just. And that would be the first resurrection, the one that happens at the coming of Jesus and the establishing of the literal kingdom. We must pursue these other aspects of justice, not courtroom stuff, caring for the humble, etc. Now, this was an important and needed message for these first century Pharisees, not denying that, but come on, we have to recognize how this applies to us as well. Yeah, and I'm trying to apply this section to living life currently in the 21st century, and I am not trying to suggest that this is not possible, because we still have our fair share, if not more, of the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, to be able to address, bring them in, meet their needs, etc., Um, But I I guess I'm trying to think practically, like, how do I go about living this out, that what Jesus is saying now? Because, like, in his context in saying this, is he meaning, like, bring random people that that fit those descriptions into your party? Or is is there more detail that's not being discussed to be like, those that you know who are poor— those that you know who are crippled, like you've had some sort of connection with them to be able to bring them in rather than it be in this cold call. Like, yeah. you know, you drive down the street and you see somebody with a cardboard sign with a note on it and you're like, hop on in, buddy, like you're coming to dinner tonight. Well, here's the thing, Samuel. You, uh, you are currently alive in America in 2022. Your life and the life of everybody around you, it all looks a certain way. And so, you know, there is an amount of danger 
in just picking up any old random person, any old where, you know, and, and especially, you know, if we have a family and you're bringing them into your house. Okay, so maybe that wouldn't be a good idea, America 2022. And, and, and it would even depend on where in America you are. Okay, but what if you were a first century Jew in Israel? It may have looked very, very different. I can't actually answer the question and say, oh, yes, Jesus meant this, but it's different for us now. I'm just saying, you, Samuel, could be alive at any time and at any place, and it's going to look different no matter what. But I, I also think that that's the less important part of the answer. And here's what I mean. Rather than focusing so much on the details of, well, exactly who should I be inviting, how, how do I go about it, whatever, hospitality, let, let me... uh charity, justice, all of these things. You know what? This is something that you actually have to practice and get good at. It's a lot harder than it looks. Most people, I mean, especially in America, most people, they just write checks to organizations. Yeah, I gave to charity, right? But to actually get involved in people's lives and to to be the vessel of God's justice and mercy to other humans living on the earth, well, you know what? That actually takes a little bit of work. And so what I would say is, you should probably start with the easier things like, you know what? There's a guy. He lives just a couple doors down from us. And guess what? He doesn't have any family. And so regularly, maybe it's on holidays or maybe it's even more times or whatever, when we have a big dinner, we invite him. You know why? Because he never has big dinners with family, and we want to bring him in and give him that joy of being a part, and he can't repay that because he's just a lonely old guy, you know, in a house a couple doors down, right? So you could start with a little something like that, or maybe you do know someone who, I don't know, maybe they, maybe they're crippled or lame, or whatever it is. You can start with those people that you know, and you begin, you begin practicing, learning how it is to do this kind of justice. And then you'll answer your own question because you are going to know how to do it yourself. And and whatever you do, whoever it is you become, the way that you walk this out in your life, the chances of somebody else doing it just like you are probably slim and none. I mean, they might see what you do, they might learn things from what you do, but they're still going to do their own thing, their own way. And it's going to develop through you, your personality, your circumstance, your location, your time, all of it. So, I don't know. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't just, you know, start on my way home from work seeing somebody who looks a little bit alone and shabby on the corner and say, hey, hey, come on over, got a party for you. But that's not to say that those people don't need justice and mercy and charity. And we, we should be doing what we can to help those as well. It's just somewhere in the middle of all this, there's like a difference between just doing things, good things even, recklessly, and, and doing things with, with a bit of wisdom and a bit of caution, care, whatever you want to call it. And, and again, it would be very different if you were single, Versus if you're married and you have family, kids, I don't know, whatever. So all of those things have to play into it, Samuel. Mm. I don't know if any of that helped. No, it's just, it's a tough balancing act to figure out here in the world that we live in now. Yeah. Part of yeah. me wishes 
like, ah, oh, shit, maybe I'm going to eat crow, but part of me wishes in some way that I lived in first century <laughs> Judaism because the opportunity, like the the amount of barriers in the way to bring people in, feel like there's there's more complex walls up now than maybe there were back then. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to know. We aren't them. We weren't there then, you know, who knows? But yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, 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 you know what? It's a good question, Samuel. It's good to be asking those kinds of questions and trying to figure, trying to figure it out. But, uh, uh, one of the, one of the other tenets of Judaism, this idea of, you know what, we should be quick to give charity. We should be generous, all of those kind of things. And at the same time, if we, uh, how, what would you say? It's like we, we, give ourselves into poverty, right? Like we're, we're not careful with how we go about it. And so in doing ch- charity, in being generous and all that, we end up making ourselves poor mm. and in need of charity ourselves. Mm. Well, that's like, uh, you know, the opposite of charity. That's like, I guess they would call it a sin, right? You You should not do that. So in the same way, we just need to be wise about how we go about all of this. Yeah, I mean, it's Just hope, do it. You'll figure it out. Yeah, and I'm, more than anything, I hope that it brings about self-reflection for all of us whenever I bring it up because I don't spend enough time to stop and slow down to think about those that are connected and surrounding my life and th- and trying to decipher, like, how much do I know about their lives and what's going on to be able to make assessments of their, you know, level of need. Yeah. And I mean, and there's so much anonymity in our world today where so much of people's needs might be masked that you might, we, you might be completely unaware that you could be inviting someone in because they're not disclosing it. So there's just so many factors and I don't know. I just, I need to step away from this podcast and, and be more self reflecting on this because there's probably people that I'm not aware of that. Oh yeah. Could, could be brought in. Um, if I just took the time to meditate on who is in my life. Yeah. And I hope you do it. It's, it's awesome. And you know, the other thing, there, there are sometimes you're going to find people, and guess what? They are going to be truly in need. And you may be, be able to offer something in that regard. And you may also find out, I don't know, let's take this to a different extreme, that their need is caused by themselves. Hmm. It is their own irresponsibility or, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it might be. And then what do you do? Right? I mean, it, it, it all gets so complicated so quickly. But remember, in the end, the point is to be as much of the image of God as you can be. So on one hand, you, you know, you want to provide the goodness, the care, the love, all of that. And at the same time, you want to push them or or pull them up. I don't know which way you want to look at that, but you want to you want to elevate them to a more excellent way. And so, yeah, Samuel, I'm telling you, 
you start actually really paying attention and interacting with people and especially with stuff like this, all of a sudden something that sounds easy, like charity, (laughs) it just becomes, it's just hard sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes it's not, but sometimes, oh boy, it's rough. But anyway, we should be charitable to our listeners. <laughs> we are at the end of our, our time. And, you know, the, the, the conversation kind of continues, but we'll have to pick it up next time. So cliffhanger, all good stuff. I think we should just, mm-hmm. we should just cut it off right here. Okie dokie. <gasps> Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about us and the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. Please feel free to send us any comments or questions you have to our email address, okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we hope and pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.